Section 6 of The Letters of a Post-Impressionist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cooper Leith. The Letters of a Post-Impressionist by Vincent van Gogh. Translated by Anthony Mario Ludovici. Section number six. Letters to His Brother, Part Two. It really is strange that you and I should always have the same thoughts. Last night, for instance, I returned from the wood with a study. For this week, I have been particularly busy investigating the question of increasing the intensity of color, and I should have been glad to discuss this matter with you in connection with the study I had made, when, lo and behold, in your letter this morning, you just happened to mention the fact that you were struck with this strong and yet harmonious coloring in Montmartre. Yesterday evening I was busy painting the gently rising ground in the wood, which is all strewn with dry, withered beech leaves. It varied in color from a light to a dark red-brown, and the cast shadows of the trees fell across it in faint or strongly marked stripes. The difficulty was, and I found it very trying, to succeed in getting the depth of the color and the enormous strength and solidity of the ground. And I noticed while I worked how much light there was even in the dark shadows. The thing was to render the effect of light and also the glow and not to lose the depth of rich color. For one cannot imagine a more magnificent carpet than that deep red-brown ground bathed in the glow of the autumn evening sunlight, softened by its passage through the trees. Beech trees grow here, the trunks of which look bright green in the clear light, and a warm black-green in the shade. Behind the trunks, above the red-brown ground, one could see the delicate blue and warm gray of the sky. It was scarcely blue, and in front of it a diaphanous haze of green and a maze of trees with golden leaves. The forms of a few peasants gathering wood crept about like dark, mysterious shadows, while the white bonnet of a woman bending to gather a few dried twigs suddenly stood out from the deep red-brown of the earth. A coat caught the light, a shadow was cast, and the dark silhouette of a man appeared high on the edge of the wood. The white bonnet, the shoulders and bust of a woman stood out against the sky. The figures were large and full of poetry, and in the twilight of the deep shadows seemed like giant terracottas fashioned in a studio. That is how I describe nature to you. How far I have rendered the effect in my sketch, I do not know. 
I can only say that I was struck by the harmony of green, red, black, yellow, blue, and gray. It was quite in the style of de Groo. The effect was like that in the sketch of the départ du conscrit. To paint it was a Herculean task. On the ground alone, I used one and a half large tubes of white, and yet it is still very dark. I also used red, yellow, brown, yellow okra, black, raw sienna, and bistre. And the result is a red-brown, which varies from a deep wine-red to a delicate pale pink. It is very difficult to succeed in getting the color of the moss and the effect of the small border of fresh grass, which shone so brightly in the sunlight. Believe me, this is a sketch which, if I may say so, people will think something of, for it makes a decided appeal. While working upon it, I said to myself, do not put down your palette before your picture seems to partake of the mood of an autumn evening, before it is instinct with mystery and with a certain deep earnestness. But in order not to lose the effect, I have to paint quickly. The figures are painted in rapidity with a few vigorous and firm brush strokes. I was struck with the dirty manner in which the tree trunks strike their roots into the ground. I began painting them with the brush, and I did not succeed in rendering the character of the ground, which was already laid on with thick color. A stroke of the brush vanished to nothing upon it. That is why I pressed the roots and trunks out of the tubes direct, and then modeled them a little with the brush. And now, they do indeed stand in the soil and grow out of it and strike firm roots into it. In a sense, I am glad that I never learned to paint. If I had, I should perhaps have learnt to overlook such effects. Now I say, no, this and only this must I have, and if it is impossible, well, then, it is impossible, that's all. I will have a shot at it, although I do not know the right way to do it. I really do not know how to paint. Armed with a white panel, I take up a position in front of the spot that interests me. Contemplate what lies before me, and say to myself, that white panel must be turned into something. Dissatisfied with my work, I return home, put my panel out of sight, and, after taking a little rest, go back to my work, almost with qualms to see what it looks like. But even then, I am not yet satisfied, for glorious nature is still too vividly stamped upon my mind. Nevertheless, I find in my work a certain 
reverberation of that which fascinated me. I know that nature told me something, that she spoke to me, and I took down her message in shorthand. Perhaps my stenographic transcript contains words that are undecipherable. Be like there are faults and omissions in it, too. Still, it may possess something that the wood, the beach, or the figures said. And this is never in a tamer conventional language that did not spring from nature herself. As you perceive, I am entering heart and soul into painting, and I am deeply engaged in the study of color. Hitherto I had held myself aloof from it, and I am not sorry that I did. Had I not drawn, I could have no feeling for a figure that looks like an unfinished terracotta, nor could I have undertaken to paint such a thing. Now, however, I feel that I am in mid-sea. Now I must set about painting with all the strength at my command. I am certain that I have the feeling for color, and that I shall acquire it more and more, and that painting is in my very marrow. It is not the extravagant use of paint that makes the painter, but in order to lend vigor to a piece of ground and to make the air clear. One should not be particular about a tube or two. Often the very spirit of the thing one is painting leads one to paint thinly. At other times the subject the very nature of the things themselves compels one to lay the color on thickly. At Mauve's studio, who compared with J. Maris, and to an even greater extent with Millet or Jules Dupre, uses paint very moderately. There are as many old cigar boxes filled with empty tubes as there are empty bottles in the corner of a room after an evening's bout, as Zola describes such a function, for instance. You inquire after my health. How is yours? I should say that my treatment ought to suit you, i.e., to be out in the air and to paint. I am quite well. I have to pay for a little fatigue. But still, on the whole, I feel, if anything, rather better. I believe it is a good thing for me to lead such a temperate life. But that which does me the most good of all is painting. Dear Theo, I wish that the three pictures about which I wrote to you had already been dispatched. I fear that if I keep them here much longer, I may paint over them again, 
and I believe it would be better for you to get them just as they are. Don't you think that, after all, it is better for us, too, to work diligently, even though we have to put up with a good deal in doing so, than to sit down and philosophize, especially at a time like the present? I do not know the future, Theo, but I know the eternal law of change. Think how different things were ten years ago. The circumstances of everyday life. The attitude of men's minds. In fact, everything. And ten years hence, many other things will have changed also. But fancy having created something lasting. And one does not repent so soon for having created something. The busier I am, the better. I prefer a piece of work that is a failure to inactivity. We shall not have to wait so very long before what we are now producing will have become important. You yourself can see well enough, and it is one of the signs of the times with which I am most pleased that there is a growing tendency for people to give one-man shows, or exhibitions of the work of a few men who belong to the same school. In my opinion, this is a development in the art-dealing world which will have a far greater future than other enterprises. What a good thing it is that people are beginning to understand that the effect is bad when a Bouguereau is placed beside a Jacques, or a figure by Berle or Lermite is hung close to a shellfoot, or a cuckoo. If I kept my work by me for long, I feel sure I should paint many of the pieces over again. But owing to the fact that I send them either to you or to Portier the instant they are free from my brush, a number of them will probably not be worth much. Though by this means many studies will be preserved which otherwise would not have been improved by repeated retouching. Peasant life provides such abundant material that travail comme plusieurs negres, El Millet says, is the only possible way of accomplishing anything. People may laugh at Corbeau's having said, paint angels, but who on earth has ever seen an angel? Yet, on the same principle, I should like to say of Benjamin Constant's La Justice au Harm, for instance, who has ever seen a court of justice in a harem? And the same thing applies to so many other Moorish and Spanish pictures, the reception at the cardinals, etc. And then there are all the historical pictures, which are always as long as they are broad. What is the good of them all? And what do their painters mean by them? They will all lose their freshness and look like leather in the space of a few years and will grow ever more and more tedious when nowadays connoisseurs stand before a picture like the one by Benjamin Constant or before a reception given by a cardinal painted by some Spaniard or other, 
they have acquired the habit of gravely muttering something about clever technique. If, however, the same men were to stand before a scene from peasant life, a drawing by Raffaelli, they would criticize the technique with the same gravity. I do not know what you think, but as far as I am concerned, the more I study peasant life, the more it absorbs me and the less I care for the kind of thing painted by Cabanel, with whom I also reckon Jacques and the modern Benjamin Constant, and for the highly respected and unspeakably dry technique of the Italians and the Spaniards. Mere illustrators. I am always reminded of these words of Jacques. Still, I am not prejudiced. I can appreciate Raffaelli, who is something very different from a painter of peasants. I can also appreciate Alfred Stevens and Tissot. And to speak of something which has nothing in common with peasant life, I can appreciate a beautiful portrait. Zola, who, by the by, in my opinion, is stupendously at sea in regard to painting, says something very fine about art in general in Maisons. Dans l'ouvre de art, je cherche, j'aime, l'homme, l'artiste. Now, I think that is absolutely right. Just tell me, what sort of a man, what sort of an observer, thinker, and character is at the back of these pictures, the technique of which is held in such high esteem? Very often, nobody. But a Raffaelli is somebody. A Lermite is somebody. And in the presence of a number of pictures by almost unknown painters, one is conscious of the great energy, feeling, passion, and love with which they are painted. When one thinks how far one has to go and how much one must slave in order to paint an ordinary peasant and his cot, I almost believe that this journey is longer and more fatiguing than that which many painters undertake in order to get their outlandish subjects. La justice au harem, or the reception at the cardinals, for instance, and to paint their frequently far-fetched and eccentric stories. Fancy living the daily life of the peasants in their cots and in the country, enduring the heat of summer and the snow and frost of winter, not indoors but out in the fields, and not for a leisurely walk, no, but for daily work like that of the peasants themselves. Apparently, Nothing is more simple than to paint a rag-picker, a beggar, or any other kind of workman. But there are no subjects which are so difficult to paint as these everyday figures. I do not think there is a single academy where one can learn to draw or paint a man digging or sowing seed, a woman hanging a pot over the fire, or doing needlework. 
But in every city, however insignificant it may be, there is an academy with a whole selection of models for historical, Arabian, and in short, all kinds of figures which do not exist in the real everyday world of Europe. All academic figures are grouped together in the same manner, and we will readily acknowledge that on ne peut mieux. Quite impeccable, faultless, but you are already aware of what I mean. They teach one absolutely nothing new. Not so the figures painted by a Malay, by a Lermite, by a Rejami or a de Maurier. All their figures are also well grouped, but in a very different way from that taught by the Academy. My belief is that an academical figure, however accurate it may be, is at present quite superfluous. Even though it be painted by Ingres himself, I would in any case accept his source, which was indeed something new and will remain so. If it lacked that essential quality of modernity, that intimate feeling, that quality of having been created to meet a need. In what circumstances, then, do figures cease from being superfluous, however faulty and grossly so they may be, when the man who digs is really digging, when the peasant is a peasant, and the peasant woman peasant woman. Is that something new? Yes, even the figures of Ostad and Terboche have not the same effect as those in modern pictures. I should like to say a good deal more about these things, but in any case I feel I must tell you how many of the studies that I have started I should like to improve, and how much higher than my own work I consider that of a few other artists. Now tell me, do you know of a single picture of a man digging or sowing seed in the old Dutch school? Did they ever attempt to paint a workman? Did Velasquez attempt it in his water carrier? Or in his types of the people? No. The figures of the old masters do not work. At present, I am very busy with the figure of a woman whom I saw pulling mangels out of the snow. Now, this is what Millet and Lermite did, and this is practically what the peasant painters of this century and Israelis did. They thought it was more beautiful than anything else. But even in this century, among the host of painters who pay particular attention to the figure, i.e. for the sake of form and of the model, there are precious few who cannot conceive their figures otherwise than at work, and who feel the need of representing activity as an end in itself. The ancients did not feel this need, nor did the old Dutch masters, who concerned themselves extensively with 
conventional forms of activity. Thus, the picture or the drawing ought to be not only a study of a figure for the sake of the figure and the incomparable harmonious form of the human body, but at the same time a gathering of mangles in the snow. Have I made myself clear? I hope so. For, as I once said to Seurat, a nude by Cabanel, a lady by Jacques, and a peasant woman, not by Bastien Lepage himself, but by a Parisian painter who has learnt drawing at the academy, will always have her limbs and body expressed in the same way often quite charmingly, and, as far as proportions and anatomy are concerned, quite correctly. When, however, Israelis, Dumourier, or Lermite, for instance, draw a figure, one is much more conscious of the form of the body, although, and that is why I include Daumier in the number, the proportions will tend to be almost arbitrary. The anatomy and structure of the body will not always seem quite correct in the eyes of the Achmedian, but it will have life, particularly if it come from the brush of Delacroix. I have not expressed myself quite satisfactorily yet. Tell Seurat that I should despair if my figures were correct. Tell him that if you take a photograph of a man digging, in my opinion, he is sure to look as if he were not digging. Tell him that I think Michelangelo's figures are magnificent, even though the legs are certainly too long and the hips and the pelvis bones a little too broad. Tell him that in my opinion... Millet and Lermite are the true painters of the day, because they do not paint things as they are, dryly analyzing them and observing them objectively, but render them as they feel them. Tell him it is my most fervent desire to know how one can achieve such deviations from reality, such inaccuracies and such transfigurations that come about by chance. Well, yes, if you like, they are lies, but they are more valuable than the real values. Men who move in artistic and literary circles, like Raffaelli in Paris, ultimately think very differently about such things from what I do, who live in the country. I mean that they are in need of a word which is expressive of their ideas. Raffaelli proposes the word character as the feature of the figures of a future. I think I agree with the intention here, but 
I question the correctness of the word, just as I question the correctness of other words, and just as I question the accuracy and appropriateness of my own expressions. Instead of saying there must be character in a man who is digging, I paraphrase the thing and say, the peasant must be a peasant. The digging man must dig, and in this way the picture acquires a quality which is essentially modern. But I am well aware that conclusions may be drawn from these words which I do not in the least intend. You see, to render the peasant form at work is, I repeat, the peculiar feature, the very heart of modern art. And that is something which was done neither by the Renaissance painters, nor the old Dutch masters, nor by the Greeks. At the start, the figure of the peasant and of the workman constituted a genre picture. But at the present moment, with Millet, the immortal master in the van, this theme has become the very soul of modern art and will remain so. People like Du Maurier ought to be esteemed very highly, for they are pioneers. The more artists would paint peasants and workmen, the happier I should be. And as for myself, I know nothing that I would do more gladly. This is a long letter, and I do not know whether I have expressed my meaning clearly enough. Maybe I shall write just a few lines to Sorrow. If I do so, I shall send them to you to read through, as I should like them to contain a clear statement of the importance I attach to figure painting. What impressed me most on looking back at the old Dutch pictures was the fact that in the majority of cases they were painted rapidly, and that great masters like Hals, Rembrandt, Ruysdael, and many others painted as much as possible de premier coup, and avoided overmuch retouching. What I admired above all were hands by Rembrandt and Hals. Hands full of life, though unfinished. For instance, some of the hands in the syndicates of the cloth hall and in the Jewish bride. And I felt much the same in regard to some heads, eyes, noses, and mouths, which seemed to be laid on with one single stroke of the brush and without any sign of retouching. Braquemond has made such a good engraving of them that one can appreciate the painter's technique 
in the print. But, Theo, how necessary is it, especially at the present day, to study the old Dutch pictures, and such of the French as those by Corot, Millet, etc. At a pinch, one can well dispense with the others, for they often lead one further astray than one imagines. The thing is to keep at it, and to paint everything as far as possible at one go. What a real joy it is to see a Franz Hals. How different these pictures are from those in which everything seems to be painted in the same smooth way, like lacquer. On the very same day on which I saw the old Dutch masters, Bauer and Osad, and above all, Terbot, I just chanced to see a missionnaire, the one of the Fodor Museum. Footnote 20 At Amsterdam The picture here referred to, which, as far as I was able to judge, measured ten inches by six inches, represents a monk seated by the side of a sick or dying man's bed. End of footnote 20. Now, Messonnier worked in exactly the same way as they did. His pictures are very deeply thought out and deliberated, but painted at one stroke and probably with every touch quite right from the start. I believe it is better to scrape an unsuccessful portion of one's picture completely away and to begin again than to keep on trying to improve it. I saw a sketch by Rubens and another by Diaz almost at the same time. They were certainly not alike, but the creed of the artists who painted them was the same. The conviction that Color expresses form when it is in the right place with the right associations. Diaz, in particular, is a painter to the backbone and is conscientious to the fingertips. End of section six. Recording by Cooper Leith.